This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome back, or welcome if you're a newbie to Moments That Rock. I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis. This is part of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts, an amazing site full of music-based podcasts. So go check out The Ball. If you haven't got anything to do, you have now. Today's guest is Mark Moreau. Mark ran, first of all, Blue Mountain Music, which soon became Island Music, the publishing company, and then went on at the age of 29 to run Island Records and did a great job. Signed some amazing acts, but who am I to tell you when he's here? Mark Moreau is coming up after this. My name is Mark Moreau, and um, I've been tasked with trying to sum up a... uh, 45-year career in 15 minutes, which is going to be really tough. So I started at Island Records in 1983, I believe, um, and I started working for Blue Mountain Music, which was Chris Blackwell's personal publishing company that looked after the rights to U2 and Bob Marley and all the reggae catalogue and Free and some great things that he'd signed, and particular things that Chris had produced. Um, And I had my first number one single, which was Pump Up the Volume in 1985, I believe, which I also signed to Island Records in America, and which gave them their first uh, number one um, on the on the dance charts in America. And it kind of put me on the map. And um, Chris really sort of took me under his wing. Um, I was only a youngster. I think I must have been 25 years old at that time. Um, and he um, allowed me to sort of get on with being entrepreneurial and encouraged entrepreneurialism. So I started Island Visual Arts maybe two years later, which was film and television pr- production and distribution. Um, then I got promoted into running Island Music. And then eventually, when I was 29 years old, I was promoted into running Island Records. And my run at Island Music was fantastic. Um, I'd signed De La Soul. I'd signed Massive Attack, Shakespeare's Sister a whole number of things that had uh, big success. 
And then I got the job running Island Records in 1990. But the, but the record company was in a bit of trouble at the time. Um, we had uh, my promotion was uh, built into uh, the acquisition of Ireland by Polygram. So Chris made a career decision on my and everybody else's behalf, which was to sell the company. And of course, I'd started working for an independent. And now I woke up one morning and I was the managing director of, of a troubled record company. Um, we lost Robert Palmer, Steve Winwood and Grace Jones after delivering their biggest hits. So um, Addicted to Love from Robert Palmer, Higher Love for um, Steve Winwood and um, Slave to the Rhythm um, for Grace Jones. And it kind of only left us with two proper acts, island acts, as far as I was concerned at that moment, which was um, U2, of course, and Tom Waits. And they were really the two sort of backbone artists. We had a fantastic catalogue, obviously. We had the U2 catalogue, we had the Bob Marley catalogue, and we had some great things in there. But we were in a bit of trouble, and I had to go into a process of really kind of re-engineering and rebuilding the company. So, you know, a lot of staff changes, a lot of artist changes, and we decided to concentrate on kind of polishing up the assets that we had. And we included in those assets the fantastic founder, Chris Blackwell, who is still with the company. Um, and amongst the assets was the incredible Island logo and its catalogue. But we had to sort of retool and start again as far as artists were concerned. Um, and I suppose NWA was the first of the, um, the releases that I had to deal with, um, where I ended up um, in court under the Obscene Publications Act for releasing Enfilfer Zagin and Straight Out of Compton. Um, uh, uh, it was a very successful campaign. We won the case. Um, the, the police had to return the albums. It was uh, it was a, quite a cause celeb. Um, and I had to really hit the ground running because immediately I was delivered Actung Baby by U2, which was, I'd already worked with U2 for many, many years as, a, as their music publisher, so I knew them well. But I inherited um, a change in, in, in kind of attitude, really, with, with U2. They'd had the huge success with Rattle and Hum previously, um, but it had been kind of critically difficultly received. I think they saw themselves reflected in the in the reviews that they were a little bit getting a little bit po-faced maybe a little bit too serious and then acting baby came along where they threw irony in and it was of course all mixed up with the fall of the berlin wall they were recording in hansa studios in berlin for that album with brian eno and um my first kind of job on a worldwide basis selling anything was selling Acton Baby to the world. And it was complicated because the first single was The Fly. I defy anyone to, to point out another U2 song that doesn't have a chorus and The Fly had no chorus. So we had to come up with all sorts of shenanigans to get that to number one, which we did. And it sort of started a whole new era for me because I had a great new team. Everybody that I'd hired in was sort of similar age to me, 29, 30 years old. We'd all been number twos in, in other companies. My head of A&R, Nick Angel, had been number two in Mercury Records. And uh, my head of marketing, Nick Rowe, had been number number two marketing in, in uh, Mercury as well. And we'd all got this lift, this this promotion into a big job. And the one thing that I'd say that bound us all together is that is that we didn't know what couldn't be done so therefore we would try anything <laughs> to try and make it work 
And I'd had eight years working with Chris Blackwell and I understood the need to try and um, inculcate excellence into everything that we, that we did at the company. So our A&R policy kicked off beautifully over the first few years. We signed uh, PJ Harvey, we signed Tricky, um, we signed Nine Inch Nails uh, right at the beginning too. Uh, we had the NWA success, we had U2's ongoing success, Acton Baby sold, crikey, probably 17 million albums. Um, and then we signed acts like uh, the Cranberries, which was signed to the American company. Um, but we had uh, responsibility for, for A&Ring it and making the records. And we just had this extraordinary period of success where everything really kicked off tricky. Um, the Mercury Music Prize, we I think we must have had 25% of all the nominations in the first five years. And I think uh, over time, Ireland, the, the acts that that I and my team signed to Ireland have won the Mercury Music Prize five times now. So that's PJ Harvey twice, Pulp, uh, Elbow, Talvin Singh, all uh, have won that prize. And I'm very proud of that. So it was um, a blessed time, really. Chris was still with us. We had the funding of Polygram. So even though it sounded like I was a bit negative when I said we were taken over by Polygram, it wasn't bad at all for the company because we were in trouble. We were needing to retool in terms of, um, you know, acquiring great acts. And Polygram's resources allowed us to do that and in spades. And virtually, you know, everything that we were touching was was uh, was turning to gold. So it was a it was a blessed time, a really fantastic time. But things change. There was a moment where I went to sleep worrying about Polly Harvey's new record uh, on a Friday. And then on a Monday, I woke up and I was having to um, respond to what single should follow Barbie Girl uh, for Aqua. Because over the weekend, my company had acquired MCA, Universal, Motown and everything else. And we had been acquired by Universal that had all of those labels. And they asked me to merge them together. So it was a period in the sort of around about 1986 of great turmoil, really, really difficult time because I had this huge operation, Island Records, MCA Records, Universal Records and um, the UK Motown office. And merging them all together gave me um, a sort of portfolio of about 300 members of staff and obviously a hugely expanded artist roster. The downside of it was was that, of course, the um, the accountants of, and lawyers have always got something to say. Um, and so what they had to say was that I may have a pool of 300 staff, but in fact, I had a target of 70 of them. So I had to really go through a horrible process of, of uh, untangling that and letting people go and trying to rationalize. And I found it personally very difficult. I... I absolutely loved Ireland and, and and I still do. Um, but one thing that Chris Blackwell did incredibly well was was give me the sense that it was mine, that I owned Ireland Records. And I knew I didn't, but in my heart I did. So when I was asked then to smash it all up, break it to pieces and then re remake it, um, that was a kind of second career decision that was made on my behalf. And I found that very difficult. And so I had built up this roster that included American acts like Nine Inch Nails and NWA and Ice Cube, uh, because I felt that I needed to go out and find American acts and, and bring them in. 
But when suddenly I had the output of MCA and Universal and I had amazing acts like Mary J. Blige added to the roster or Blink-182 or, or, or even Aqua and Barbie Girl, um, suddenly um, having such a vast UK roster seemed to the accountants and to the lawyers um, like a bit of a luxury. So the one thing that I felt very good at, which was UK A&R, discovering and nurturing talent, was the one thing that began to get pulled away from me because what they wanted was for me to sell more American products around the world. And I found that really tough. It was not um, necessarily the, the most pleasant um, experience, even though it was great having um, the pressure taken off and other artists coming through. Excellent stuff. The trials and tribulations of running a label. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And then the accountants and lawyers come in and tell you you've got to get rid of half the people who want to do this stuff with you. Oh, well. 
Mark Moreau on Moments That Rock. This is part one of Mark talking about his career. We'll be back after this. Then a third acquisition happened, which was when Vivendi, um, which Chris Blackwell described as a French sewage company, um, acquired Universal. Um, and I again was faced with, um, I survived, you know, each time I survived the cut, I was probably into my, I don't know, eighth or ninth year of running Island Records at that stage in the late 1990s. Um, and I had to again make cuts and make changes and keep the accountants happy. And I began to feel really quite unhappy at that stage. Um, and I was approached by my bosses who could detect that I was a bit troubled. Um, and they offered me to add to my portfolio Deutsche Grammophon, Decca Classics, Philips Classics, and to effectively take over half the UK roster of, of this vast universal company. Um, and I turned it down because I didn't feel that I had um, really brought the MCA Universal Island group together enough in order to be able to add another three um, labels to it. In turning it down, I managed to negotiate something into my contract, which was effectively the right to become the deputy chairman of Universal UK. So that nobody could be promoted above me. So no managing director of any of my rival companies could be promoted above me uh, without them coming back to me first. I had effectively turned down that deputy chairmancy by turning down the classics labels. But in doing so, um, in effect, they breached my contract because I had that right. Um, and so that was the moment where I decided, right, that's it, I need to get out. And I quit. I pleaded um, constructive dismissal. I had a, a big argument, not too, not too aggressive with Universal. They knew I'd been there for 18 years. They knew that I was still working really closely with U2. I was A&Ring U2 and had effectively had that A&R role for, for 10 years. Um, and so um, I, I was allowed to go, uh, but continue working with U2. So with U2, I still carried on um, with the A&R function for all that you can't leave behind. But I also built U2.com for them, which was their huge website. Um, and I did that because I, I've, I've always been a huge technology fan. And I had spotted in um, 1995 when when the, the graphical interface of the Internet came about, I spotted the opportunity and I used my own credit card to buy u2.com URL, u2.co.uk. I bought islandrecords.com, islandrecords.co.uk, and I gave them the certificates. Um, and I do remember Paul McGuinness saying, what's this? You know, you normally give me a Fortnum and Mason's hamper for Christmas, and now you've given me a piece of paper that says www.forward/colon/u2.com. What the hell's that? And I said, believe me, at some point, it's going to be a very, very va a valuable asset. And their thank you was to, to give me the budget to be able to go out and build that, which I did in 2000. So I quit Island Records in 2000, built U2.com, and then started my own management business. Because one of the things that really struck me over the time um, that I was working at Island was, was how few well-scaled and well-experienced managers there were out there. And I had loved working with principal management and U2, and I'd signed my precious artist PJ Harvey to them, as well as obviously having U2. 
obviously you came into the music industry at a young age, but you were groomed working with music people. And then you were kind of working under accountants and lawyers, weren't you? So how was that transition? Well, I think you've got to remember that I started as a musician. I didn't go to university. I left school. I decided that I was going to fix the world with my weeping guitar and I was going to change the world as a, as a prog rocker, just as punk hit, effectively. You learned um, more from a three-minute record than you ever learned at school. And, and, and it's absolutely true. And, and I also learned more from a 26-minute record, like, you know, Echoes for Pink Floyd than I did from anything at school. Um, but I, I used to tell everybody that I was a, um, a professional musician who did a bit of gardening for a living. But the, the reality was, was that I was a gardener who did a bit of music for a living. I had an amazing early break. I, I worked as a gardener for Tim Rice, of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice for fame. And in the pissing down rain one day, he called me into the kitchen because he was feeling sorry for me. And he asked why an articulate boy was digging his Jerusalem artichokes. And I said, well, actually, Tim, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a professional musician. And he said, oh, all right, play me your demo tapes. And I did play them um, the following week. And um, he put me in the studio as an arranger. So I went into, uh, into the studio with, with a bunch of musicians and I worked on some Tim Rice stuff. And I really felt that my, my career was going to start um, as, as a musician, in particular in the studio. I loved working in the studio. But in reality, gardening caught up with me. I became very ill with, with an illness that at first they thought was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Then they thought it was leukemia. But then they found out that it was, in fact, a gardening illness called toxoplasmosis that you get from cat shit in, in, in the garden and cuts. And it took me right out of the game. I couldn't, I, I couldn't even lift an instrument, let alone a spade. Um, and so for a year, I was kind of I was hospitalized and then I was eventually diagnosed and, and and it changed my life. It was one of those cathartic moments where I realized that life wasn't a rehearsal. So I moved to London. Um, I got a job working at R Price Records, selling records over the counter in their smallest store, which was in Hounslow, which we used to call the R Price Mega store because it was the smallest that they had. Um, and on my one day off every week, Wednesday. Um, I volunteered to work at a small music publishing company for nothing. So I interned every Wednesday at a company called Eaton Music, which was founded by uh, a trumpet player called uh, Terry Oates. He made me bring my guitar to my interview. So I had to prove to him that I could play the guitar. I, rem I remember him interviewing a receptionist who brought her co her coronet and she had to play a little trumpet solo uh, to be able to get the job as receptionist. And, you know, those were real. He was a proper music man. Um, and I worked on a project with Island Records. I got headhunted and then started working for the quintessential proper music man, which was Chris Blackwell. And I think he I think he really liked me from a very early point because um, we had such things in common. You know, I was actually a sort of minor public school boy. He was a Harrow public school boy. Um, his father was a was a military man from Jamaica. My father was a military man from Mauritius. Uh, in the British Army. And I think he saw us as kind of soulmates, but with 20 years in between age-wise. And Chris really sort of took me under his wing and he gave me the education. He gave me the confidence to to make me sign things that I, that I really felt convicted, uh, had conviction for, rather than signing things that were going to make us money. His uh, he inculcated in me this absolute belief that if you get the music right, the, the money will follow. Never chase the money. And so working for Chris was just a blessing. 
he allowed me my head. And there were some certain huge deals that, that that came my way that Ireland was punching way above his weight. Um, you know, things like Massive Attack, where Chris supported me in the decision to sign Massive Attack. He just gave me ev- everything. He gave me my career and, and I will always be eternally grateful to him. Running the company, if somebody kind of comes in and buys it out, then all of a sudden you're working for people that you've got to almost impress from day one because they're there to balance the numbers, aren't they? I don't really think that um, if you two had been with a CBS or as it was at the time or a Warners or something, they'd be where they are today. They were into Ireland for like a quarter of a million dollars in tour support and stuff like that. And at the time, there was, they, they, there was one band they needed to drop and they dropped Ultrabox. And it proved to be a good move because you two really hadn't sold enough records at the time to warrant staying there for, for a label that was in cash flow crisis. Chris really, really made me believe this concept that you're signing the, the people. You're, you're not just the job is not to fall in love with the music. It's to fall in love with the people as well and to share a common vision. Um, and if you look at my signings, I, I tended to sign things um, that that. Where, where they came complete. So the signing of PJ Harvey, you're not, I was not just signing an 18-year-old girl from Bridport who, who, who stared at her shoes when she performed. I, I was signing somebody who had a complete vision for her own artistic future. You know, she, she, she knew what she wanted in terms of producers, in terms of design, album sleeves, photography. She knew what she wanted from videos. She was the complete package. And she was... She is the the epitome, really, of the type of thing that I felt that I ought to be signing. Um, and again, you know, fell in love with her music, but fell in love with her and her vision as much as anything else. And, and it, it was a guiding light all the way through, you know, whether it was Tricky or whether it was Nine Inch Nails. You know, Trent Reznor, somebody with an absolutely crystal clear vision for who, for who he wanted to be. And it was perfect. Wonderful stuff. Splendidly articulated by Mark Moreau, our guest today on Moments That Rock. And that's just part one. Mark will be back with more stories of his time uh, working through Island Records and what he's doing now. I really do feel for those people who have to lay staff off. I was one of those um, back in the day as well. Because you really want to work with the team, but you're driven by accountants and lawyers telling you to balance books at the same time. So we're off now. Moments That Rock is part of the Panting Group of Podcasts. Subscribe, come back and listen to this again next week. Thank you for listening. Subscribe. And if you like what you've heard, I'd love a review. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 